good morning. Today, um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews. Uh, we're actually going to finish the book of Hebrews, look at the last few verses together um, in chapter 13. But what I want to do uh, really is, is we'll, we'll end there in chapter 13 and verses 20 through 25. But what I thought we would do this morning as we wrap up this wonderful book of Hebrews is look back at some main points and hope to bring some application about some of the the, the main ideas and the main points of the book of Hebrews. Uh, when we finish the study today, we'll be done today, um, we are going to launch into a new series in which, for the record, we announced we were going to do this series before uh, COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, the seven letters to the seven churches, a study in Revelations. Uh, we're not going to be going through the book of Revelation. We're going to go through, we'll look at chapter one as an introductory and then chapters two and three as we look at the seven churches to the Revela- uh, uh, to John, the study in Revelation. So that's where we're going to go. I'm going to talk more about that in a little while. Um, so if you have God's word, I hope you do. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Now, as we've been studying the book of Hebrews, again, this is just an overview. I just want to do a, a, a wide-angle view of the book with you this morning. Um, as you know, we've been saying over and over again that the purpose of this letter, of this epistle, um, is, is to declare, is to make known, is to, to reveal the supremacy, uh, superiority, supremacy, and sufficiency of Christ as an exhortation. As, as a, an exhortation is a, not just a word of encouragement, but a strong word of encouragement to the church to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of persecution, to stand firm, not to go back, not to abandon Christ, not to turn away from the faith, and go back to previous ways of communion with God, connecting with God, having intimacy with God. And we learn that this church, back in chapter 10, verse 32, were under persecution. It says they, they had endured hard struggles. Chapter 2, verse 32. Chapter 10, excuse me, verse 32. They endured hard struggles with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. Chapter 10, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. There were some that were, that were put in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You can see what was going on. And then he says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, pointing to the work of Jesus and the new kingdom. This persecution, if you remember, it happened around probably 65, 67 A.D. during Nero's terror uh, uh, reign of terror, because we know that this epistle was written before 70 A.D. when J- the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, it was very clear that this letter was written while the temple was still up and running. These Jewish believers, because of their faith, faith in Christ, endured intense hardship and intense persecution with the result that some were being tempted to go back, to slip back into Judaism, trusting in things that were no longer helpful, no longer relevant. And if they acted upon it, the author tells us, uh, if they went back to old ways, um, it would have severe and eternal consequences. That's why there were multiples, at least five warnings of apostasy in this letter, falling away from the faith. Family, we are all at some point tempted to trust, to rely, and hope in things that are old and non-relevant, non-helpful, ways that can lead us into very serious consequences. We're in a very hard season right now, a time when we are concerned about our health, about others, our family, our church family, our neighbors, 
and friends and the health of, of so many people. And let's be honest, too. We're, we're concerned about our jobs, our finances, our 401ks, our retirements. Being concerned is okay. Being concerned is, is, is right. And your old ways, these old patterns, uh, these wrong thoughts, old movies from the past of, of stress and hardship may want to, to kick its ugly uh, face again, old wounds, maybe anger, anxiety, loss of patience, lack of trust in God, worry, depression, addictions, even laziness might want to rear its ugly head. This happens, temptation to go back happens in times in hard times, in difficult times, in stressful times, in uncertain times. Well, what are we to do? I'm glad you asked. We need to remember, recall, rest, rehearse, reorient our minds and our hearts on the superiority and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. The gospel of this majestic, magnificent, glorious God. So let's, let's look at that. Let's look, take a jet tour, an overview of the book of Hebrews as we've been studying, just kind of going back and looking at the, the superiority, looking at the supremacy, and looking at the sufficiency of Christ. And I hope this word is an encouragement to you this morning. So let's first look at the superiority of Christ. I have a list there for you this morning. Jesus is better. That's been the name of the series uh, this entire time. And, and rightfully so. Jesus is better. And the, the book of Hebrew opens up with this stunning claim that even though God graciously spoke to us through the prophets, through the men of old, giving us his word, revealing himself to these men in the Old Testament, he has now finally and fully and definitively and ultimately spoke to us by and through his son. Chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, but, excuse me, by the prophets. But in these last days, remember, the last days is after the ascension of Christ and the coming of Christ is all the last days. In these last days, until he returns, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is not another prophet, just another prophet, just another scribe, just another mouthpiece. He is not merely a change of action, activity, equal with other prophets. God has spoken, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, literally means in the Son or in Son. Because Jesus is the ultimate word. God's climax and final word is Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The whole of his person, the incarnation, the coming into this world, his word, his deeds, all should be understood as he's communicating God to us. His word to his new covenant people. He is superior to all those who spoke on God's behalf. Next, the author says he's superior to any angels, any spiritual beings that God created. Angels, the author say, worship Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus, not angels, have been given the title, the Son. We're going to talk about that. We live in an age where this, this, this spirituality is, 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 is on the rise, right? I mean, even now with, this, with what's going on, people are trying to seek and to look and to, and to all of a sudden people want to become spiritual. What does that mean? Dr. Christina Puchowski, director of George Washington Institute of, uh, for Spirituality and Health, says this way. 
Spirituality is the aspect of humanity that refers to the way individuals seek and express meaning and purpose and the way they experience their connectedness to the moment to self, to others, to nature, and to the significant or the sacred, end quote. Another definition I, I saw this week was, uh, on speaking of, speech, uh, speaking of spirituality, uh, spirituality means any experience that is thought to bring the experiencer into contact with the divine, end quote. You see, because of the Imago Dei, because we were created in the image and likeness of God, there is within us, because of our who we are connected as the creator uh, creates us, and we are the creatures, that we are, we, we are meant to connect with him. We, we are not meant to be our own little gods and our own little saviors. And it appears that in the angels in the Old Testament, uh, well, we know that they were sent by God to minister blessings to God's people in creation. Uh, they visited Abraham, Lot, even carried out the death at Passover. And, 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 and no wonder that the Jewish people in the time of this writing, um, at some point angels became these spiritual connections, these spiritual beings of, of, uh, and objects of exaltation in the minds of the children of Israel. So to the Jewish mind, angels were enormously lofty and uh, very important. Listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with looking for ways to connect with your creator. The problem is when you try to do it, you and I try to do it by our own, you know, our own way, our own thinking. Sinful creatures only make up the gods of their own minds, their own thoughts, their own perspectives. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The writer of Hebrew thought it necessary to show us that there's only one way to God. One superior being that, that connects us to God. One superior way to be united with the infinite one and his name is Jesus the Christ. Not angels, not some random made up spirituality. There's one way in which we are to get right and get into the presence of almighty God to rely upon and to receive his grace and his mercy and his power and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the superior word. He is the superior being over angels. And then the author goes on, if you remember, uh, through a litany of, of things and peoples and rituals that Jesus is superior over. He is superior to Moses, the one God used to rescue and redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. For Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. This great prophet Moses, this great lawgiver, this, this great deliverer has been used, was used mightily by God and, and we should honor, we should recognize his faithfulness, but Jesus is better. Jesus is superior as the son, more glorious as the builder. And, and this is not, we've said this before, it's not, we're not comparing evil and virtue, like in other words Moses was no good or Moses was evil and Jesus is go, good. But no, 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 Moses is good but Jesus is superior. Moses is in the house, God's son is over the house. Servants serve. But as to the inheritor, the son to whom the house belongs. Oh, how great and wonderful and how much more glory does the son receive. He is greater than Moses. Jesus is seen to be superior to even the promised land. 
a piece of a property that God promised God's people, the place where God would, would meet with his people and, and they would worship there and there was promised rest for them there. God would meet them, give them his law. He would, his presence would be there. They would be safe. They would be secure. That's what our author of Hebrews uh, tells, us, tells us in chapter 4. But like the rest of us, they sinned and, and didn't really get any, a whole lot of rest in the promised land. And, and the author of Hebrews brings this to mind. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, For good news, that is the gospel, the good news of Christ, came to us in the New Testament, just as to them in the Old Covenant. The gospel was preached in the Old Covenant. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed entered that rest. We who who have come to faith in Christ, have trusted Christ, we enter into rest. As he said, I swore by my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Talking about the unbelievers. For if Joshua had given them rest in the promised land, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us, therefore, through Christ, through the gospel, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The rest. Jesus is superior as the word of God. Jesus is superior to angels, to Moses, to the promised land, providing a true and superior rest. Are you resting in him this morning? Are you resting in him this morning? I tell my grandson when he's, when he's upset and we're trying to talk with him. And, and, I, and I tell him, hey, buddy, just, just take a deep breath. It's amazing how it just calms him down. When he just breathe. Trust in Christ. Rest in God. Rest in the superiority of Christ. And there's more. <laughs> As if that was enough, God gave to Israel means by which they can approach and worship God. He, he is better and greater than the sacrifices, the priests, the sacrifices, and the covenant. Remember, God taught the people of Israel they cannot just enter into his presence. Sinful people and the holy God do not mix well. And one of the vehicles that he gave to the people of Israel as a gift to the people of Israel was the priests tribe of Levite, where the priest came out of, starting with Aaron. I'll get more into that later. But for now, understand that God gave the church, gave the old covenant people the gift of the priesthood. They bore responsibilities to offer sacrifices required by the Mosaic law. They cared for the certain things, the religious articles, the, the showbread and, the, and the, uh, the lamps and all the things that were inside this temple. They bore that responsibility to care for those things. Worship activities, the reading of the word, the instruction according to the law of God, giving the ordinances to the people of God. They were intercessors. They were, they were ministering in the temple. Offering sacrifices, most importantly, sacrifices to atone for the people's sins. And you can imagine how important the priests were in the Old Covenant, ancient Israel. They were ministers of of salvation, of forgiveness. They were your access to God. Very much like the priestly hierarchy you find in a Roman Catholic church. And how important they are to that system. 
There was also what was known as the high priest. We talked about that. And just to remind you, the high priest was, came out of the priesthood, but they were uh, known as the anointed priest, or the chief among brothers. They were the only one, the, the, holy, the, the high priest was the only one to enter into the, the holy of holies, that inner sanctum of, of where God's presence was within the temple once a year in the Day of Atonement. He'd offer sacrifices for uh, his sins and then sacrifices for the sins of his people. In fact, the high priest was such a representative that he had to offer up sacrifices for himself. And if he did not, he would actually put his own guilt on the people. And the offer of, of Hebrews demonstrates the superiority of Christ's priesthood for several reasons. I just want to walk through them quickly. Number one, chapter four, verse 15 says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What he's saying is that Christ identified with us in our humanity, but he alone was without sin. Then he says that the Old Testament priests were ignorant and wayward and beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he was obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of his people. So Jesus, in his humanity, identifies with us, but also, in his perfection, does not have to offer sacrifices for himself, as the priest did. Very important. The second thing uh, we know about the superiority of Christ's priesthood is that it did not come by legal requirements. That is, from the tribe of Levi. We know he is from the tribe of Judah. His priesthood came, if you remember, from the order of Melchizedek the mysterious king that met Abraham in Genesis 14. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. If you remember, he blessed Abraham, and Abraham paid to him a tithe. In other words, the greater Melchizedek blesses the lesser Abraham. The lesser Abraham pays a tithe to the greater Melchizedek. What he was doing, the author was demonstrating that uh, from every possible angle that Melchizedek is superior to the priest of Israel. And then he goes on to say, that Jesus is greater even of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus became a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement, concerning bodily descent, not from the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews showed the preeminence of this man, Melchizedek, this priest-king. This, this king of peace, king of righteousness, and then says, you know what? Even Christ is greater than him. Jesus is the true and better and superior eternal king who gives righteousness, who, who gives us peace, his righteousness by his perfect life imputed to us by faith. His peace is made by the blood, his shed blood that we have peace with God. And lastly, Jesus is a superior sacrifice and he inaugurates a superior covenant. Jesus is a superior priest with the word, the angels, the promised land, the priest. And now he's the greater sacrifice who inaugurates a superior covenant. The writer of Hebrews had a lot to say about covenants, old and new covenants. Within the old covenant, we saw that the, the tabernacles, the temples were a foreshadow. The priesthood was a foreshadow. The sacrifice is a foreshadow until Christ comes and his shadow begins to fade away. And the reality is Christ himself appears. And according to chapter 8, verse 2, the true temple, the true tabernacle. 
But listen to chapter 9, verse 11. We talk about sacrifice and covenant. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not of the temple, not of things we see, he entered once for all into the holy place, into the presence of God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, chapter 9, verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them and us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So even the first covenant, second covenant, all redeemed by the blood of Christ entering into the very presence of God, sacrificing himself as the true and better sacrifices. Animals no longer are needed. Christ gave himself. The spotless Lamb of God, the eternal perfect Son of God for sinners, and the new covenant promises, the forgiveness of sins, renewal and regeneration by the Holy Spirit has been fulfilled in Christ. Again, it's not that the old covenant promises God made to his people were bad. They were just not final. Hebrews is is this study, this wonderful study in contrast between the limited, the un fulfilled the incomplete provisions of the old covenant and the fulfilled complete and infinitely superior covenant in the provisions in the new covenant it was offered to us by his son the perfect high priest god's only son the messiah jesus christ so family what does that mean for us this morning no one and no and nothing in the universe nothing in all creation No one, no experience, no person, no relationship, nothing gained or lost in this world is superior to Jesus Christ and knowing him and treasuring him above all earthly treasure. And and dare I say, even life itself. To live as Christ, to die as Cain, Paul said. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, whatever this world offered me, and there was a lot, I counted as loss For the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. There's our word. Surpassing worth above, greater, more valuable, superior. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from doing deeds, doing things. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Family, listen. In this very difficult, again, in this unknowing season of our life. May we we press into, may we press into Christ. May we rest so heavily on his love. That we can say with the Apostle Paul, there is nothing in all creation. There is nothing in all creation worth holding on to in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I want to know him. 
I want to treasure him as my greatest treasure in this life and in the life to come. The superiority of Christ should bring us to the place of worship. He is infinitely superior to anything this world can offer or take away. The superiority of Christ. Look at the supremacy of Christ. We talk about supremacy. We're talking about his his ultimate authority. You see that authority, power, and dominion. He is the king of kings, and he alone, Scripture tells us in Colossians, he alone is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn means authority. It's a place of authority, position of authority. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. Whom he appointed, well, verse, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the eternal radiant light of God's glory. The moon reflects glory. Um, the moon reflects light. The sun radiates light. Jesus is not just reflecting, but is God's glory incarnate. That's what he's saying. This radiance that he's talking about goes back to the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory. The demonstration, the, 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 the manifestation of his glory to God's people. Jesus. And looking at Jesus is, is the way we fully see the glory of God. The same glory that God said he'll share with no man, he shares with Jesus. They have one glory. He is the radiance of his glory, the majestic glory. The, 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 the majesty of his infinite worth and value that God has within himself, the Father and the Son. Look what the text says, chapter 1. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The personal imprint of God. The exact and perfect copy and imprint of God. The word nature is essence. Jesus is the exact representation, embodiment of all that God is. And it says not only is he the creator, not only is he the exact imprint, but he's also the sustainer. He is not inactively sustaining power, uh, sustaining the universe, but actively holding and continually holding the universe together by the word of his power. So when you talk about the supremacy of of Christ, you must talk about the deity of Christ. Because that's what that's what the author is holding, you know, showing us. The deity of Christ. And that's what Hebrews says. And that's we need to understand that he is who he says he is. His deity, his sonship, and his position. When we speak of the deity of Christ, we speak of his, of his godness, who he is, his sonship, and his position. And Hebrews does that. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says this, in his last days he's spoken to us by his son. We already saw that. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 says this, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, but of the son he says, 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We have a high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews chapter 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. Hebrews chapter 7. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We can go on and on. We'll stop there. You see, these are the verses that Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons often use to spew their, their false and damnable doctrine about the person and work of Christ. That somehow Jesus did not exist. He's a created being. He was never a son and then became a son. That's not what the scriptures teach. When you think of son or Jesus being the son of God, it is right and biblical to think that he is the son of the same nature as God, ontologically speaking, no doubt. Okay, so when you see Jesus, the son of God, think Jesus, the son of the same nature as God. The ancient creed puts it this way, Athanasian creed. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence, their being. For the Father, excuse me, for the person of the Father is distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, end quote. So when the author of Hebrews and what the scriptures teach, when they say essence, they're talking about his godness. All three persons of the Trinity share the same essence, co-eternal, co-existing. One is not more than God than the other. They, they, none is more essentially divine than the rest. And when you talk about persons, we say that God is one in essence, three in person. They have particular individual uh, distinctions from one another. God is one in essence, three in person. It was God the Father who planned from eternity past a way of salvation. It was God the Son who died on a Roman cross, shed his blood, and procured salvation by his work. It was God the Holy Spirit applies this life-giving regeneration in our salvation. And that's what the author has been talking about, all of this, and how Jesus now has that title as son like no one else has. And we know in the New Testament, uh, it's not only just the son of the son of the same nature. We also know from the Bible, from ancient uh, antiquity, that the son also does what the father does and what the father receives, is give, what the son receives, he receives from the, from the son, from the father. What the Father does and receives all that the Father has. It's given to the Son. We see Jesus working on the Sabbath. Insisting as the same prerogatives as God the Father. Whatever the Father does, Jesus says, the Son does also. Jesus claims co-extensive action with God the Father. If a person can do all that the Father does says all that the Father says, we cannot distinguish him from God. And Hebrews teaches us something very important about the sonship, not only in his deity, but in his position. And that's what I want to look at just for a moment here. When 
the author speaks of the Son of God. It, it speaks of several different things. But one of the things that's most important, I think, in this letter as we've been looking, is that this Son is the supreme King of the universe. This, this Son has been given the reign, the rule, to administer justice with perfect integrity and righteousness over the cosmos. Hebrews mentions it. Not only his deity and supremacy, but this rulership, this position as a son. Chapter 1, verse 6. Let all God's angels worship him. The son. Look at the position his son holds as the one who is worshipped. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He made purification for sin, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The son, chapter 1, verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, again, is the scepter of your kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 13. He tells the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Chapter 8, verse 1. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ offered himself a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Chapter 12, verse 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, with the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And then it says, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And that is a place of honor. That is a place of power. That is a place of favor. That is a place of, of dominion. That is a place of authority. Only the Son. He is above all powers, all rulers. He's, he is, he is, has authority over all the cosmos. It was Abraham Kapper who said, there's not a square inch on planet earth where Christ Jesus doesn't say mine. After our study in Hebrews, as I mentioned earlier, um, we're going to look at the seven letters to the churches in Revelations, chapters 1, one and 2 and 3 actually. Uh, just here's a sneak preview, okay? We're talking about the supremacy of Christ. The Apostle John writes this letter to, to the churches. And we're told in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That does not mean... That you are blessed because you could figure out exactly how all the eschatological end times things come together. Exactly how God is going to bring to pass the end of the age and the coming of Christ. In fact, there's been some TV preachers using this coronavirus and pointing to you to the end times. Shut the television off. I mean, people have been doing that for hundreds of years. They sound more like Jehovah Witnesses than they do Christian preachers. Do yourself a favor. You want to know what Revelation is all about? The supremacy of Christ. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. Keep reading the letter. John to the seven churches in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. The ruler of kings and earth. To him who loves us. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion, authority and power, right? Forever and ever, amen. 
Yes, Jesus is coming back. Yes, all the promises of Revelation will come to pass. But we need to stop looking at, looking to the how this is all going to happen and start looking to the one who will make it happen. Jesus is the only one in the entire universe, in the entire world that has dominion and authority, as Revelation 5 tells us, who is worthy enough to open the scrolls, to take the scrolls, to open it, seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. Jesus is supreme. He is the king of kings, one who ascends to the throne. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, because of this Christ, this this risen, glorified king, therefore, 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The understanding of his supremacy is essential to our view and worship of Christ as the God-man. He is not simply a man superior than the rest, a spiritual being above the rest, but is truly supreme above all creation as only God can be. Jesus is supreme over both the physical, the spiritual realms, and therefore the only one worthy of our worship. Things of this world, yes, some things are very important, but God still, Christ still remains supreme over them. It is so important that we understand the supremacy of Christ. It is central to an accurate view of his person of his work on the cross, our status as believers in understanding the eternal kingdom. All philosophies, all cultures, all religion, all brokenness, all sickness, all kingdoms, all authorities, that which is seen and unseen, all things and all creation that was ever created are subjected to the supremacy of Christ. For a 17th century Puritan John Flavel said this, Cast your eyes among all created beings. Survey the universe. You will observe strength in one, beauty in a second, faithfulness in a third, wisdom in a fourth. But you shall find none excelling in them all as Christ does. Bread has one quality, water another, raiment, garment another, medicine another. But none has them all in itself as Christ does. Does. He is bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, a garment to the naked, healing to the wounded, and whatever a soul can desire is found in him. End quote. Oh family, let us let us exalt let us exalt him. May we see and savor the supremacy of Christ. Listen, when we do, when you and I are satisfied and resting in God. And all that God is and all that God has done for you in Jesus, in the gospel. When you and I are completely and solely trusting in the exalted Christ, our souls are making much of him, treasuring Jesus. Your heart will overflow with love and you will say, that is my Savior. That is my God. That is my, my God. And you know what? Fears will start to dissipate. Fear of the unknown. And you'll be able to rejoice in suffering, as Roman tells us, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
Endurance produces character. Character produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit of which he has given to us. The supremacy of Christ. The superiority, the supremacy, and finally the sufficiency. When we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, when I'm talking about it this morning, I'm talking about the atonement. I'm talking about being fully and finally forgiven of all our sins. And now we can, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can have uh, absolute assurance. We have access to the throne of grace. We can, we can always be before the Father's face. We can always be eaten eternally in his arms and his care because of Christ's sacrifice, the sufficiency of his atonement. Now, that reality, the truth, and, and the reality of his complete sufficiency of his sacrifice wasn't really understood, I don't think, Before he was born, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose from the dead, ascended to glory. I don't think they really grasped it in the Old Testament as we see the sufficiency of Christ in the new. So now remember, God gave his law to his people. God gave his law and said, "Um, you want to come and worship me? I want to be your God. We want to have communion together. But you know what? I'm holy and you're sinful. Remember, so God gave us the priests. But God also gave us the sacrifices. He gave us the sacrifices in order to atone for sins. And by atoning for our sins in rebellious ways, we can now approach a holy God. Right? The sacrificial system allows us for, 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 for sinners, for God to invite sinners into his presence, even though he is holy. And that is all mediated, as I said earlier, by priests who represented the people. Between a holy God and a sinful people. Every sin required a penalty. Every sin required a penalty and a blood sacrifice in order for the worshiper to be forgiven. And one of the, one of the greatest day, or the, I should say the highest day of that atonement where blood was spilled for the sinner was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. I mentioned it earlier. Let me just say it was a day in which the high priest would enter into the most holy place where God's presence, his panim, his face was. And he would offer up sacrifices for himself, for atonement for sins. And then he would offer up uh, sacrifices for the nations of Israel. Remember, God gave us the means of atonement. It was his decision. It was his provision. He gave us blood as means to make atonement. When blood is shed, death has occurred as an atonement. And those who are covered by this blood sacrifice are, are then free from the consequences of sin. One life is given, payment for another life. But the old covenant sacrifices were temporary and and, and postponed real judgment and uh, the real judgment of God while the new covenant of the blood of Jesus is permanent and brings to us a, not only is it sufficient, but a permanent redemption as we read earlier in Hebrews. Even the fact that the old covenant, the, the, the priest of the Old Testament would go over and over, year after year for Yom Kippur, and day after day for sacrifices, there would be a reminder to them that it was never really done away with. It wasn't sufficient. It wasn't fulfilled. There was still a need every day, once a year for day of uh, Yom Kippur, for sacrifices to continue. Hebrews 10.3, but in these sacrifices there... In these sacrifices, the sacrificial system that God gave, um, there is a reminder of sins every year because it's impossible for the blood of animals and goats to take away sins. But chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest does stand daily at his service. He's standing there, no place to sit. 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never really take away sins. But, verse 12, chapter 10, when Christ had offered for all time, it's sufficient for all time, a single sacrifice for sin. He's not standing around anymore. What does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God. They had to keep working. He sat down. They had this never-ending uh, sacrificial uh, duties in the temple. But this once and for all willing sacrifice was final, full and sufficient. Abolishes the old inadequate sacrifice. Inaugurates a new kingdom. and uh, Excuse me, a new covenant. The offering of Christ himself, his body, his blood, his sacrifice, listen, is completely and fully effective forever. It removes sins. It destroys the enemy. It fulfills the promises of the old, excuse me, of the new covenant. And as a priest, Christ has fully paid for our sins, for your sins, with his precious blood once and for all, past, present, and future sins, never, ever, ever needed to be repeated again. I came across a poem this week about the sufficiency of Christ, unknown author. He writes this, his, Jesus, his blood is so sufficient, he tells us in his word. On the mercy seat in heaven, it was put there by our Lord. It stops the accuser of the brethren as he walks before the throne. Our God just points to the blood and Satan knows he cares for his own. It's sufficient for any situation to nourish, to cleanse, and to keep. Oh, magnify your name, my Lord, my soul, with rapture leaps. Can my sins, though oh so many, make this blood of no avail? Once I've named the name of Jesus in my heart, I cannot fail. His word has proclaimed that the work begun in me will someday be completed when his dear face I see. And when I dwell in heaven, as the ages roll along, oh, that precious blood of Jesus will be my victory song. The Hebrews, the book of Hebrews went to great lengths, went to great lengths to talk about the incarnation and how important it was the incarnation, the humility of Christ in our salvation, that he had to identify with the offering. That's why, why blood of bulls and goats do not, um, do not take away sin. Jesus became a man, and therefore it can substitute for human beings on their behalf. Yet he was God. His sacrifice was all sufficient because he was the God-man. He's the only suitable, only sufficient substitute. He is infinite. And our sin against him is infinite. And therefore he made an infinite and eternal sacrifice. Jesus the God man. Jesus the only sufficient. Way of salvation. And that eliminates. Being saved. Being redeemed. Connecting communion. Intimacy with God. It eliminates every other possibility. Jesus is the only one who came from heaven, fully God, and yet fully man, identifies with those he came to save, and yet because he is fully God, he is able to save. He's not just some good moral teacher. He's not someone that you may choose to follow. Jesus Christ is 
superior. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is all sufficient to forgive us. His sacrifice can atone for our sins. Once and for all, completely washed, forgiven forever. Eternal sacrifice. Isn't that how the benediction ends in chapter 13? Chapter 13, we read this in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, God working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And we see right after he says, God is a God of peace. He tells us what he did and by whom he did it. He, he, he rose Jesus from the dead. And he did it through Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus, the risen Lord, the great shepherd of his people, who brought his, bought his people with his precious blood, inaugurates an eternal kingdom. That God is going to equip us with everything good so that we may do his will, that which is pleasing in his sight. God, listen, God will meet us. God, God will meet us and strengthen us. As we move through our life, moment by moment, day by day, in hard times and difficult times and unknown times, God will meet us. God will equip us. And it's only, look what it says in the text, it is only through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever. Ephesians 2.10, we know 8.9 about salvation being a free gift. But verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in Christ, each one of us, listen, beloved, listen, each one of us in Christ has an eternal design job description, (laughs) which includes the task to do, the ability to do it, and the place in which we are to do it. Whatever the task he's called us, he's equipped us. It's, It's indisputable that if we're going to please God to do his will, we need to do it in the power Of his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. I have to admit. I have to admit. Unfortunately. Sometimes I'm quick to want to muster up my own strength. My own power and do my own thing. Right? And especially in times like this. Want to revert back to just plugging along in my own own strength. In my own power. And not resting in the gospel. And it seems like we have more and more time to rest these days. And to read scripture these days. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But we should be resting, we should be in power, we should be trusting him and, and asking for his empowerment. If anything, these days have shown us how really frail we are as a people. We need God's strength. Our only empowerment to serve and plead God is through Jesus Christ. For him to be praised forever and ever. Look what it says. The last word, the benediction tells us this. To Jesus Christ, you see that? In verse 21. Through Jesus Christ, to whom? Be glory forever and ever. Amen. He alone should get our praise and worship. It was his eternal covenant, the new covenant in his blood, the promise of a new heart, a new relationship. Those things will never change. He is our resident shepherd who cares for our souls. He has compassion on us. He empowers us. So let us pray for one another. Let's pray for for each other. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the churches, for his equipping, his enabling so that we can find ourselves living under his 
will his pleasure. Verse 22. Then he turns and he says, I appeal to you, brothers. There's a camaraderie, love, brothers. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. I love this. My favorite verse. For I have written to you briefly. Long sermon, Lou. Pastor Lou. Well, it's brief. Compared to this, it's even more brief. Right? I'm writing to you briefly. All 13 chapters. Brief letter. Verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. He's been released. Timothy, who is Timothy? Timothy obviously was in prison. We don't know that other than this letter. He is a friend of Paul, a disciple of Paul. He wrote, got two letters from Paul, First and Second Timothy. He was, became an important leader in the church, continuing the, continuing the ministry of the word uh, after Paul's death. Obviously, he was in prison. Now he's free, and he's, he's saying, look, we all know Timothy. There's, there, there's, there's, there's a connection, I think, even with Paul and Timothy and all the brothers in the, in, that were leaders in the church. Verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. The problem is that phrase, come from Italy, send you greetings, is ambiguous. And we're not sure if it was Jewish Christians in Italy and those believers who were getting the letter were, were actually from Italy, but in some other place. And, and we know you, so we're greeting you. Or it's possibly that we're in some other place. Uh, or, or we're in Italy and we're sending it to someone. We don't know where that connection is. Maybe they were in Italy writing their letter and sending the letter to another place, probably close to Jerusalem. That's what I think. Um, I think they probably were in Italy where the letter originated, possibly, and sent that letter and saying, hey, we know there are some Italian Jewish Christians there, um, and we want to send out greetings. We don't know exactly. We don't know exactly who it is, but these, you, could see, you could see the love. You could see the connection. You could see the, the camaraderie and the brotherly love that the church has for one another, for Timothy, for the leader who's writing this letter, for, for the brothers who were not present. You could see, we'll bring Timothy, and you could see just this beautiful ending to this letter. But then it says this, verse 25, grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. Obviously, he's talking about the grace of God. What makes grace grace is that it starts from God, freely, without being merited or earned, John Piper writes this, God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace is a way of saying that God is God. That he is the infinite, all-sufficient, self-existent, complete source and sustainer and owner of all being and all value and all worth in the universe. And when goodness comes from him, it comes freely. It can come no other way. Therefore, all his goodness is grace. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the Hebrew, the, the writer tells us that the source of this grace comes from the throne of grace. Where divine assistance is, is available forever. And the hour of necessity, the hour of strength that is needed comes from grace. And it can overcome difficulties, hardships, assault from the enemy. And it is enough grace to preserve us to the end. And family, this is where we'll close. That we will heed the word of exhortation here in this letter. May we personally, you and I, may we as a church, the family of God, grasp fully the message of the superiority, 
the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ who died for our sins and lovingly embraced us in his blood, in the new covenant, eternal access available to him. May you and I consider him fixing our eyes upon the king of kings, the author and perfecter of our faith. May, may we heed the mornings in this book and exalt the promises in this book. May we follow the examples before us from antiquity, from present, but may we always look to Jesus. May we receive an inheritance. May we, as the children of God, receive with the saints the inheritance in the heavenly Jerusalem as we worship with the angels in joyful assembly of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his grace will always love us, will always empower us, will always forgive us, and has a kingdom awaiting for us that can never be shaken. He is superior than anything in this world to offer. He is supreme in reigning and ruling and ushering in a new kingdom. And his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is all we need for the forgiveness of sins and communing with God. May God's grace be with all of you. Father, help our hearts exalt in Christ. Help us to see the superiority of Christ over all things. Help us to see the supremacy of Christ seated in all authority and splendor. And Lord, in this time, let us cling to the supremacy of Christ. All that he has done in and through the gospel. That nothing in all creation can take that away from us. That we are fully and finally forgiven. And now we have communion and intimacy with you. Through the blood of Christ and the word and the spirit we pray. In Jesus name. Amen.